we have a New York in the 70s film festival on right now. Yeah. Um, so I'm staying after work pretty much every day, like except for today, um, to see like French Connection and 35mm yeah. and Dog Day Afternoon and all kinds of good stuff. Was that by design? It doesn't hurt. Um, yeah. But I I do tend to go towards jobs where like the extracurricular activities mm-hmm. will be good. Um, before Film Forum, I was at uh, Japan Society yeah. for six years, and that was really great. They have a great film festival, a great um, gallery program, a language center. I took some Japanese lessons, didn't didn't go very far in that. And then before that, uh, Studio Museum in Harlem. So like great gallery work there as well. So yeah, I tend to look for organizations that are interesting. I guess the Japanese society is kind of in your house because your stuff hedges a little bit towards manga. Yeah, definitely. This is a question that I end up asking everybody inevitably is whether it's good to find something in the industry Mm. or whether that's the sort of thing that just burns you out to something really quickly. That's a great question. I don't... I mean, all I can do is speak for my experience and that, you know, that has been really great. And I've just been able to expand my sort of mental library in terms of like references that I want to pull into the work. And even, you know, I think it's just I think it's good to be able to work as part of a team. Um, I think people tend to think of cartooning as this like solitary existence. And it's really not. Which the actual (laughs) like the the hard work is certainly. Right. Yeah. Well, when you're um, when you're independent and, you know, doing everything, then Maybe you can, you know, uh, see yourself as a little bit more like a solo artist. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're working for a big company, then you're drawing, you know, somebody's inking, somebody's coloring, somebody's doing whatever. So you have to have some like modicum of communication skills. (laughs) Um, Definitely doesn't hurt. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, it doesn't it doesn't burn me out. I would say being a part of a team that puts on work that I find like personally satisfying only kind of fuels that fire to do my own stuff more. What you're doing, though, is only really at best kind of tangentially related, right? It's I mean, the question is more if you want to be a filmmaker, for example, and, you know, you spend like five years being a PA, I can see that completely ruining the film industry from the same standpoint where and, you know, if you had gotten a job at a publisher, you kind of see how the sausage is made. You see the CD side of things. And that's that's sort of an easy way to lose any modicum of romance you might have around a certain profession. Hmm. It, it's worked for me. That's all I can yeah. say. It is what it is, Santa. I don't really have. A, <laughs> I don't really have any idea of yeah. like what it would be like to do something else. You know. Do you see the possibility of actually being able to do cartooning full time in your future? Not really. No. I don't really want to. You don't want to? <laughs> no. So you're happy just having it be a, an after hours kind of gig? Yeah. I I don't mind it. To this point, I don't mind yeah. it. I I don't know. I'm 32 now. I yeah. don't know if um in 10 years I'll feel the same way. But I I really don't mind it. Like I said, I like being part of a team. I think it's good to be a person. I think it's good to be a person in the world and be able to know what it's like to navigate social situations at all times. And I think that that's only helped me as a cartoonist, you know, being able to go do a show, being able to organize a tour, being able to promote my own work and talk about it, using all these different experiences that I have in the professional realm and taking them back to comics has only been a good thing for me. I I don't think of myself as someone that can sit at my drawing table for eight hours a day and not go completely insane. I think that would be a bad thing for me. I think it would be a bad thing for society and my loved ones. I don't want to do that to them. So, yeah, I think uh, I I really don't mind. It's a grind, but like so many people have it so bad, it feels dumb to complain about you know, oh, I have to work a lot more than other people. I moved out here to be a writer. I've been able to do that professionally, but there's still things outside of my day job that I would like to write about. As I've gotten older, I've lost a lot of that 
energy. It becomes harder and harder to do that, to set aside that time. I get that. You know, I never, I didn't really set out to be a cartoonist. Maybe mm. that's kind of the thing. Um, I always knew that I wanted to make comics and they've always been a big part of my life, yeah. but I studied art history and I wanted to be a curator. And so, you know, the comics started taking off and it felt like, you know, this is something that I've always kind of quietly dreamed yeah. about, but I never, you know, I didn't study art. I didn't take comics classes or do anything like that. Um, and so every achievement that I have just feels like a huge success because hmm. I wasn't supposed to get it, Yeah, you know? So having that sort of framework in mind has been really useful on those days where you're like, I'm not getting anywhere or I'm not doing anything. It's like every time I feel like I put pen to paper, that's some small victory because I, I feel like I just wasn't supposed to be doing this. So you've still been able to really commit yourself to it 100%, even though it wasn't your primary driver yeah i think so yeah i think so well i put out three books in five years that feels pretty good yeah um and uh and all of this sort of like ephemera that i've been able to do around it like getting to do a podcast and getting to do shows and getting to like lecture and you know teach and stuff like that like that's been really cool so yeah i, I don't know everything just feels like it, it feels like on the whole, like comics has been really kind to me. And so that's a community that I like to stay a part of. How did you get into it if it wasn't exactly what you wanted to do? <laughs> well, I grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and my dad owns a newsstand there. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first job. And that was like, I always had to keep going back to the newsstand like every weekend to work. And so I'd pick up the comics there and read them. And just sort of getting into that as like a form of communication was really interesting. And we have a, we had a really great shop in town called Dreamscape Comics, um, and they had a huge like wall of alternative stuff and like adult stuff. And I would just go in after school in my like Catholic school uniform and just take adult stuff off the shelves, and <laughs> nobody stopped me. It didn't matter. And just sort of seeing like this is such a powerful tool of communication, and I didn't know that storytelling could do this much. So yeah, and just deciding, you know, I I love drawing. I've always like been good at drawing or I've been told I'm good at drawing at that age I just want to try to do it myself so yeah it, it just stuck for a lot of comics fans who got into it through superhero comics mm. or even like Sunday comics it seemed like a completely unattainable goal until you started seeing the independent stuff until you started realizing that like, people are self-publishing so at what point did it turn from you really just sort of scribbling in your notebook to actually putting comics out into the world I would say it it took me reading um, Dave Cooper's Ripple. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. Um, found it at the in the back shelves yeah. of the comic book store. Covered in a layer of dust. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> um, it just seemed like it was so explicit and so graphic, but also so wild. And that story is so bonkers. Yeah. And reading something like that and seeing, you know, like Dave Cooper's art is, is obviously like meticulous and beautiful, mm -hmm. but seeing that it just didn't look like anything else. I was like, if I can find yeah. a style, then this seems very possible to me. So I think that that was the big one that sort of pushed me over the edge into just seeing like I, I think I can do this it's funny though because this stuff is like it's painted I mean it's it, it does seem like you know when you look at somebody like him or somebody like a lot of what Jim Woodring does it looks like to me that would be the hardest thing to attain mm. yeah I don't know I think it I think more than the style I think it was the the storytelling yeah you know so yeah I don't know that's a strange one but that's the one that that stands out to me was filmmaking ever something you had considered as a career path no not really I mean you kind of like you have to understand like um 
Growing up, my uh, my parents didn't go to college. I didn't even know like what you went to college for. Um, when I got into Syracuse University my first year, I didn't know that like you took classes for two semesters. I didn't realize it was just like a one semester thing. I didn't know how anything worked. And so the idea that like you could go to school and learn how to be a director, like that just, I, that didn't even yeah. register as something that was possible. It was like that dream is like too big. Um, but it, it was never really something that I thought I could do just for that reason. And I think the reason that I chose art history was that um, my like first week there, I, I went to the arts and sciences school and they just had a list of like things you could do in different majors. And I was like, art history, you can like work in archives. So I was like, that sounds cool. I'll work in an archive. Yeah. Like, cause you know, you're like 18. You're like, that's probably how it works. Yeah. So that was what I picked. Yeah. Yeah. But any sort of like creative endeavor, you know, my, I would say Pennsylvania more than like any other state is not only like not interested in art, it's like anti art. It's like, please don't, don't bring this around. We don't need it. No, thanks. So yeah, those, those sort of options just seemed like they would never be for somebody like me. Why is Pennsylvania? I've never heard that before. Why is Pennsylvania anti-art? I think because I think because it's just one of the most repressed states. <laughs> I think it's it's a lot of generational sort of like paranoia there. Um, and also like uh, the thing that I think about is that David Lynch had the option of like going to Germany to study art or like spending some time in Philadelphia and he took the Philadelphia trip and came back and made a racer head. And I just feel like that speaks volumes to what's going on in Pennsylvania in terms of like anti-aesthetic. The subject matter of a racer head was informed by the fact that he was in Philly. Absolutely. Yeah. Just the Philly in the seventies was, was like that. It was industri super industrial okay. and kind of yeah. horrifying. Yeah. And it was, it was really dangerous too. I heard something a couple of years ago. I don't, I don't know if this is apocryphal and I feel like it's not the case anymore because I, uh, to its credit, I have since been to Pittsburgh a couple of times. I, I was there a few, few weeks ago, and it's actually like a really nice city now. Yeah. But I had heard something at some point that apparently they were filming scenes from the road there. Oh, yeah. Without having to do any yeah. any CGI because so much of it just looked completely yeah. bombed out. Absolutely. I, I do really love Pittsburgh. It's yeah. my favorite Pennsylvania city. Where I'm from, Bethlehem, there's a Walker Evans photo, like Depression era photo of South Bethlehem of a cemetery and a few years ago somebody went to try to recreate that photo and they didn't it was exactly the same yeah yeah so um like even even just like the cityscape behind it and nothing has has changed so yeah also um it, there's just, it's just kind of this weird area of stagnation i mean there's also centralia pennsylvania where there's a mine burning underneath fire for yeah. like 65 years yeah. right yeah there's just like a literal yeah. hell beneath yeah. this town but then there are residents that still choose to live there yeah i mean that doesn't mean you can't make art there right i mean in a way you... i mean you can't go outside because like your feet will burn. well yeah no i mean there so specifically there's pennsylvania in general is right is is the state's just anti-art? No, I mean, obviously I'm speaking in generalizations yeah. there and just trying to be funny. But um, I think, well, and then you also have really great cartoonists there. You have yeah. a whole collective of people in Pittsburgh that are mm -hmm. amazing. I was out there and I, I had Frank on the show and we talked about this quite a bit. Because it's kind of isolated and because the broader community might not be that welcoming, everybody is such a champion for one another. Mm. It's a really tight-knit community. And in a weird way, I was a little bit jealous of it while I was out there because when I was more involved in the comics community out here, there used to really be 
a community in New York. Mm. You know, there used to be a lot more events. There's still a little bit centered around Desert Island and, yeah. and a few of these places. But it's just such a big city that it's kind of alienating. Yeah. I think that's true. Maybe I'm just getting old and maybe I'm out of it, but there doesn't really seem to be that much of a comics community, at least in the way that there was before. I think that's true. I think um, New York has displaced a lot of people. Yeah, people um, get priced out. People get priced out. Your days get longer. Job Jobs are harder to mm-hmm. come by, so your 40-hour week becomes a 50-hour week, and, and trying to do the sort of thing that I'm doing becomes less and less feasible yeah. um having a side hustle mm-hmm. yeah what keeps you out here i don't know i can't leave <laughs> they won't let me leave i've tried a couple times they, they as in the forces of the world okay yeah uh, no i um i i've tried to move and I, i've you know it first of all i try to apply for jobs that are outside of yeah. new york and that's hard because nobody believes that you're actually gonna move and then i've gotten really close on a couple occasions and then it just it, they're like you would be bored here i've been told that from jobs that i've i've come really close to being hired at People like trying you to get dissuade hired. you from yeah. taking the job and moving there yeah which is not never really a great sign it's like okay yeah. that's that's fine you know it's it's not that essential that i get this gig but yeah how long have you been in the city 10 for? years okay do you, do you think after 10 years in new york that it would be too much of a cultural shift i think it would definitely be an adjustment period yeah. no matter where i go but you know uh i don't know i think i'm a pretty adaptable person yeah. i think that is one thing that i can say that I know to be true about myself is that I'll, I'll just kind of stick it out no matter what. So I think I would be okay. Yeah. I mean, certainly if you do get to a point where you want to make that transition to doing art a little bit more full time, it's much more feasible just about anywhere outside yeah, of New York yeah. City. Yeah. But I mean, we also have, you know, these sort of overarching issues of like healthcare and mm. like basic income and all of these sort of things that like I don't see getting taken care of in the next like five to ten years when I would want to do this so I'm not you think that we're just fucked in general I don't want us to be (laughs) but I think whatever changes are going to happen it's going to be something that's yeah a very long overhaul obviously working where you work is a is a big benefit Mm -hmm. being theoretically in and around culture is a benefit as well you know I, I had this issue a couple of years ago when I was freelancing full time and realized I was trying not to spend money so I wasn't leaving my apartment. Oh, yeah, that so, can make you. So crazy. there wasn't, you know, so there wasn't really. I, I couldn't figure out what the benefit of being in New York was if I wasn't really taking advantage of these yeah. things as much as I could. Yeah, I I get that, and I've I've been there. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I. I'm just so used to it now. Yeah. I, I kind of can't really picture myself anywhere else, but I also do have like fantasies of like LA yeah. or Portland or Seattle or something, but never really that like fleshed out in my mind. So I, I don't think that I'm done here yet. I think I'll know when I'm done, but I'm not done yet. Yeah. I, I do have that thing where every time I go to another city that mm-hmm. I, I consider. You just want to torture your life. And it just feels like probably what it would feel like to just unclench a muscle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm yeah, just like absolutely. not having that residual New York angst when I go mm-hmm. to other places, when, I, when I'm when i walking down the sidewalk and people are moving slowly in front of me. And I don't have anywhere to go. Right. But there's just that sort of weird yeah. drive. And yeah. it would be nice to attempt to exercise that from my system for a little while. Mm, that's going to be a hard thing yeah. to, to get rid of. How long have you been here? probably 13 years yeah, something like that gonna, I'm that's pretty, gonna be uphill for sure i think all every everything is out here and if i yeah. moved from here and wanted to keep doing what i was doing i would have to go to san francisco which is probably worse in a lot right. of ways yeah 
I'm going to San Francisco for the first time oh, yeah? in August. Um, I'm doing a How have you avoided San Francisco your whole life? I've only been to the West Coast twice huh. in my life. I went to LA and then I went to Seattle for a show. Yeah, yeah I've, I'm doing a signing there at Comics Experience. They have a book club and my book was the book for August so that's really fun and then I'm gonna do Portland and Seattle after that and I've never been to Portland either so I'm excited so so I I guess this is a much I mean it's it's on Fantagraphics so there's a difference right there it's a much different experience for you right Mm -hmm. yeah you're on Ad House before Mm -hmm. you're on Spark Plug before both wonderful but much much smaller and certainly don't have the same kind of means (laughs) when it comes to promoting a book yeah they were great places to just sort of get versed in in all yeah. of this though and i'm i'm really glad that i i think everything sort of worked out the way that it should with the with comic stuff really because i think if i had if i had broken like when i was 23 and had like a fanographics book yeah. at like 23 24 i wouldn't have been able to handle it and now i just feel like what do you I mean can, by handle it i think you see a lot of people kind of melt down online yeah. and yeah. and kind of say things maybe they shouldn't say or <laughs> act out in ways that like you know they're going to look back and be like a little bit embarrassed yeah. about. Also having the bar set that high early on, yeah. there's got to be so much angst around attempting to follow that. Absolutely, that and especially in an industry that like what legs do you have? I yeah. mean, what what is after fanographics? Where do you go yeah. next? You know, do you go Pantheon to Abrams? Yeah. yeah, like what is and then where do you sort of go? And it's like I said earlier, you know, I wasn't supposed to be here doing any of this. So fanographics is like a major achievement. It, it's a major achievement no matter what. Yeah. But it's something that I feel really especially strong about and very like protective over now. And so I'm kind of minding my P's and Q's and making sure they have everything lined up well. Minding your P's and Q's in terms of not saying horrible, terrible things online <laughs> or what? Um <laughs> Keeping the hate speech to a minimum. Yeah, I do. I do. I have to frequently um, censor myself. No, I. it's more like, you know, making sure when you have to do something for NPR, you yeah. hit the deadline. Uh, making sure that, mm. you know, when you're doing an interview, you make sure to give a good description of what the book is. Yeah. And you make sure to thank Eric and thank Jack and, you know, all of these people that made this book possible. So just being a little bit smarter about that. And to go back to what we were talking about earlier, because I was at Japan Society and I worked in media there, I had media training, basically. So now media training and and docent training. I was Mm -hmm. a docent in their gallery. So Mm -hmm. it's like I kind of can speak about what I'm actually doing and I'm not going to get super thrown. I mean, it never occurred to me. It makes perfect sense that you would have to have training as, as a docent. What are some of the guidelines there? Um, well, the number one guideline is everyone's going to ask you how much work costs. That's uh-huh. all they want to know. How much painting? How are. much a painting costs? How yeah. much does that cost? And you're not supposed to tell them. Yeah. But I would tell them because <laughs> I like to get good reviews on my <laughs> on my scorecard at the end. Would you like um, sort of like in hushed tones pull them aside? Yeah, yeah. they want to show. Yeah. is what they really want. They yeah. want to show. Um, and they want to feel like they're hearing something that not every yeah. person who takes a tour gets. Absolutely. And also, what they want is. They want reinforcement on their own ideas. So it's a, a lot of times it's just sort of like art nerds that are like, oh, actually in 1824. And you're like, yes, that's that's right. Wow. Thank you so much. You get actually you know? a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, that's fine. I don't care. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't care. But I think my favorite thing was I took someone through the gallery and by the end of it, they were like, you are so 
good at this. Would you come to Sotheby's and help appraise works? Because like I want to bid on stuff and I need an expert. And I was like, it's not going to be me. But thank you so yeah. much. I can't do that. You BS your way through it. Yeah, a little bit to well, such I mean, a degree. Yeah. I mean, I I always knew, you know, I I would be in the catalog and you go to the docent meetings and you know you you drink the stale coffee yeah. and you sit and you talk about the work and sometimes artists would come in and you get to talk to them and it was really great access, you know, getting to talk to Mario Gomori and you know sort of ask her questions about her pieces it's like that's a once in a lifetime thing but at the same time when you're like live on the floor with an audience of 30 people and you have to shout you have to figure out okay what are the most essential things that I need to tell people and then the people that are really interested are going to ask me questions on the side so it's a lot of just learning how to edit as you speak which is really difficult I'm sure you know doing yeah doing the show you want to show how knowledgeable you are about something you want to give every single piece of information you Mm -hmm. can you have to keep the process moving as you've got people in there you've got especially when it's a show of like you know 200 ukiyo-e prints and you're like how do you you kind of have to go with like a test audience and be like which ones are the most interesting and just learn about those specifically so then somebody asks you about something else and you're like oh yeah you have to like kind of read the label again and be like right i know about that one too but you really just know about like one or two pieces it's interesting too because that's a really different side of of art when you are in a sense you're kind of observing people and seeing how they react to these different works so you're able to kind of figure out what elements really catch somebody i mean it's a Mm -hmm. different experience when you're walking through a gallery Versus, you know, trying to appreciate something in a book. Yeah. Like, what what is it that really hooks somebody? You know, I think it's... It's kind of sad to say, but I think monetary value is always the most interesting. It it really is because, I mean, what stories break from the art world now? When stuff gets taken down because people find a problem with it. Or when something sells at auction for a record price. That's when art breaks mainstream news. So that's the context that people have for work. So when I would study work, I would look for, like, which, you know, uh, is, like, the most valuable historically. And what was aesthetically or culturally controversial about any piece in this room. That's what you need to know. Everything else is, you know, noise. Part of the question is, you know, and and this is like the broader question about art in general, is what makes something worth more than something else? Context is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's just connoisseurship and whatever is in. Those factors that are driving up the price on something are kind of essentially what hooks people, right? Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, why is, I don't know... uh, why does Jeff Koons sell for more than, uh, you know... I don't know. think anyone can answer that question. <laughs> well, yeah. I can't even yeah. think of anybody, like, comparable. There's actually one right across the street from the here. Big, Have you seen that? The dog loom. Yeah. The, yeah. There's, um, I made a vine with a friend of mine. We were yelling at it because it was so dusty. <laughs> we were like, oh, they don't clean, they don't they clean spent, it. They probably spent, mm-hmm. what, tens of millions of dollars yeah. on that thing? And yeah. they don't clean it? You know who else is very dusty? Museum of Modern Art. The Brancusi stuff. Always dusty. Huh. Always dusty. It's yeah. a huge white space and they can't seem to get like a feather or duster yeah. in there. It drives me up the wall. Being a docent or at least working in a museum, that was really what you were interested in when you graduated from school? Yeah, I thought that I would become a curator. Yeah. <laughs> and, and once again, it was like, um, that seemed like, some, it seemed like a goal that like I should have. But it also seemed like if you wanted a job in the art world, that it was something that you could actually do. I mean, yes. it's something more attainable than I'm going to be a famous painter. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I... It wasn't until I, you know, had my first New York City Museum job at the Studio Museum in Harlem that I realized, like, this is going to be even more uphill than probably a cartooning career would be. Really? Because, 
you know, not only it's like getting a master's while you're yeah. working, which I did start on. I started a master's degree. It's also going and getting a PhD after that. And then you take on an internship after that. And then you're assistant and you're, you're essentially working 20 years for a career that you could make maybe $40,000 doing. Didn't know that yeah. <laughs> going into it. So those plans sort of changed. And, you know, academia is not really my thing. I'm not great in school. I do okay, but the way that I'm sort of wired, I'd much rather be working. So just dropped out of school quietly yeah. and kept kept on kept keeping on. There's a way to be critical outside of the world of academia. And I think you've managed it, right? At least in some respects. I mean, you have, I think it's it's on hiatus right now or maybe defunct, but you have a podcast where you examine pieces and then you do stuff for the comics journal. So mm-hmm. you're able to bring some of those learnings into what you do yeah yeah we have trash twins which is retired for now um sarah and i are both working on new books so we're just sort of like we can't keep up with this um it was really great it was a good experience and you know i think having an outlet it is it's nice and it's nice just sort of being able to talk to a friend for like an hour and people are into it you know who like so lucky to be able to say that Yeah, I, I stick to this as an excuse to talk to people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, you know, just to sort of switch it up and to get musicians in and yeah, have no, a chat with them for an no, hour. No, it's really cool. I had a girlfriend once, we were talking about like how awkward I can be at parties. <laughs> and she said, she was like, I don't understand how you can do a podcast and still go to a party and not engage somebody in the conversation. It was just, well, A, there's certain parameters there mm. that are involved. And B, you know that you're going to be interested in somebody before you even sit down, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole, it's funny we can use these as kind of channels to be more social or to you know, engage more with the world. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, being being social at a party is so difficult yeah. because it's like there's so many people, you, yeah. you know, all every time I talk to somebody at a party, all I'm thinking about is like, who do they who would they rather be talking to? Yeah. Like, who are they going to get away from yeah. me? for? Like, you know, I'm like, that's fine. It's just it's not really <laughs> it's not a conversational space for sure. Yeah, so it you're is just, just working it, on a different social sort yeah. of um sort of frequency yeah i suppose it depends on the party i mean that was always sort of the nice thing about the comics world is oh we have a thing Mm -hmm. like i can go up and talk to a stranger because clearly there is common ground there's something that we're interested in i suspect that's sort of similar in working at the film forum for Mm -hmm. example it's easier to engage people in conversation if you know there's some kind of commonality there yeah definitely what is it that you do there? I am their data and digital communications coordinator. Okay. Is that like a, a PR job? It's like it's like between PR and development, cultivation, fundraising, okay. that kind of a thing. So I keep data. So yeah. like everybody that comes in the door, like I have your information basically, oh, which is great. And then I for use- like mailing lists or- yeah, 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 basically. And I use that to figure out like who are we going to target for this digital communication yeah. and then sending out press releases and doing all that sort of stuff. So because it's a nonprofit, you know, as you probably know, there's a lot of different roles that become- one role so i'm sort of in that in that gray area but i'm going into two years and i'm like we'll we'll work out like a new sort of title and a new thing that's nice though Um, between that and and the things that came prior you have a very unique skill set when it comes to cartoonists again we're talking about like how like socially awkward a lot of them can be which there's a reason why that stereotypes exists Mm -hmm. let's be honest but now, you know, in 2017, even if you're working through Fantagraphics and you're mm-hmm. working with Eric Reynolds and Jack Cohen and all these great people, they have a built-in PR team. You still have to manage every single aspect of that, right? Yeah. You still have to be your own PR person. Obviously, you're running your own Twitter account. I assume that, like, <laughs> you're... you're it's not my cat. 
<laughs> yeah. And you're doing your own website and you're like greeting fans. There's a certain amount of socialness that comes with not only doing interviews, but even just being at a show and interacting with people. And Absolutely. you've got this really like cool skill set that you can Thank bring to you. the job. Yeah. The only thing I don't do myself is my nails, pretty much. Okay. Everything else I'm putting. Do you feel like that's an important aspect of? I do. <laughs> because I want to be better at it, but I don't know how to do like gel and all that stuff. I would like to learn how to do designs. I'm what role does nails, do nails play in? It's important. It's just, it's a personal thing okay. you know and i have a couple v- broken ones presentation now. so yeah i like to be together mm-hmm. publicly i like to be together at a show yeah. i'm very aware of the way that i look like am i cleaned up i don't think so i don't think so I don't, I don't know i mean Do you, you know versus so? you I go to a comic show and everybody's cleaned up yeah I'm hi- I'm <laughs> hygiene is your yeah, brand exactly <laughs> that's what i believe in i believe in a good eight hours of sleep yeah. and i believe in hydration that's the katie scally okay. brand everything else is you know what wherever the chips fall yeah. whatever but i definitely like to at least you know you show up like you're showing up for something that matters to you treating a comic convention like a job yeah it is a job. Is that something that you've always done? I mean, were you a little more loose about it in your 20s? No, I've no. always been like that. You weren't uh, You weren't out partying until 3 a.m.? <laughs> I mean, I would be, but I'd still show <laughs> up in the morning and I'd put morning. a face on, sure, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> but I, I, it's important to me because I, I just feel like I should show up for the work. I've put so much work in. Everyone can and should act the way that they see fit. But for me, if I'm at a table and I've worked my ass off to get a book to people Mm -hmm. and there are people that are coming up and they're excited to read it, I'm going to be nice to them. I'm going to learn what their name is. I'm going to sign their book. You know what I mean? If I see them in the hallway later, I'll be like, what's up? I just, I don't, I feel like it's important to be engaged on that level because if if I didn't have those people, I wouldn't be doing this at all. I suspect even as you're making the transition to Fantagraphics, this is still going to be the case, maybe a little bit less so, but shows are so important in a lot of cases. You are you're selling every single book to somebody. Mm-hmm. That's why those are important. And a certain percentage of any of these books are sold in shops. But, you know, for the most part, like you're really doing the hard work, I mean, especially yeah. you've done a lot of uh, mini comics. Mm-hmm. And that's a really, that's a real one-to-one. It is. It is. And there are certain issues of, of comics that I've done where every single one is hand-stapled by me. It's yeah. hand-cut by me. Like, this is something that, that feels like a very physical part of my being. And so selling that has a lot of emotional resonance yeah. to me. So, yeah, I show up. They're your I babies. They're, they're kind of my babies. Yeah. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of the successes that I've had so far are just, I showed up. I showed up and I like took it seriously. Mm-hmm. I I think that's kind of it. I think that's the key. Does actually being there and, and talking to somebody and having somebody interact with your work in front of you, have these conversations, does that ever actually impact the work that you do? No, I'm not interested in that kind of input. <laughs> but what I am, but there there have been times where like emotionally it's, it's like affected me. Well, sure. You know, um, but it's it's really both ends of the spectrum. People are, mm-hmm. are really nice or really mean when it yeah. comes to shows like that. Yeah, uh, the mean ones don't. I don't actually get a lot of mean okay. mean people. But we're still probably just ignore you, I suppose. That yeah, but that I mean I don't really care about that yeah. either. It, it's more like when young girls say you know like they look up to you yeah. or um, that they want to do what you do. Like when they grow up, like that gets me because yeah. I'm like, you need to talk to a guidance counselor. This is not, this is not the plan. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. I, I do worry a little slightly, but, but I, it, it does get me. And those are the moments where you go back to your hotel room at, at the end of the night and you're like, 
what is going on. I never thought that it would. Yeah. I never thought it would impact somebody on that level. Now, at the same time, I remember what it was like to be like 13, 14, 15 years old. And I was saying those kinds of things about like, you know, the Sailor Moon TV show and stuff like that. So I you can't take it too seriously, but it does feel it does resonate. Are you thinking about 13 year old Katie Skelly when you make these things? Like what what you would have liked at that age? I mean, obviously, a lot of them are probably way too adult, at least theoretically. I mean, I read Lolita when I was 13, yeah. so I I probably would like it. I, I think it would have felt like out there for me. But I the times that I think about like young Katie are, again, when it's like it's at the end of the day and like yeah. I've gotten this done. Or we have a talk coming up at the Strand in a few weeks mm-hmm. and it's me and Gary Panter. And I'm like, that hits hard because it's like it's fucking Gary Panter yeah. and me and, and not saying that like we're peers or anything like that but like just that we get to be on the same roster at all yeah. feels amazing to me but then that we you know kind of get to engage in front of an audience as like equal cartoonists feels bananas and that's a new level of this being real right of, yeah. again you're not a necessarily a career cartoonist and that seems to be in at least to some degree by your own choice but it is a lot more real it does feel in a way i assume more legitimate than like when you were hand stapling and photocopying things yeah yeah it, it definitely solidifies it and i'm still processing that yeah. and it's you know it's like the wi-fi just hasn't connected like I, yeah. I just haven't internalized it yet but it does feel very real it'll probably feel more real once that event is over And I'll be like, oh, I wish I could do that again. Yeah. And I'm always worried that things are going to go away. And I think that's one of the reasons that I work as hard as I do, because I'm I'm just so afraid of being like, if I don't put anything out in a couple of years, no one will remember me. Do you think that has to do with the tenuous nature of comics and the economy? Or is that just something that's like deeply ingrained into your... I think that's just me. I think that's that's my own personal sort of neuroses coming out. In times like when we find a certain level level of success, we kind of feel like a fake or a sham. Mm, Like the imposter syndrome. Yeah. And that's when things I think start to get a little bit more problematic. Yeah. I feel that way. Do you? Yeah, I do. I feel like I'm always just grifting and someone's going to, you know... Yeah. Uh, like expose the grift. But you seem to have a lot of faith in your work. Yeah. I, I have faith in myself as a grifter. You know, I think I would be I would be great. At yeah. That. Yeah. You think you're doing good work. I think so. Yeah. So yeah. how could you be an imposter if you're actually doing good stuff? I don't know. It's just something that, that I think it sits with everybody, though. Yeah. I think everybody kind of feels that way. Like, the flip side of that is there's a lot of people have an inherent sense of entitlement. Yes. I think that that's true. I think that's why, you know, I think everyone needs to take a turn at my dad's newsstand. I yeah. think they need to work there for a summer. And if they start getting, you know, above their station, <laughs> they just get knocked back into it. So vampires. Vampires. Is this something you've been circling for a while? Aesthetically, yes. Yeah. I didn't know Everybody that. Everybody wants to write about vampires, right? I th- I guess so, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are, you know, there's a couple books out there about them, yeah. This is the first vampire This book. is the I've first one? Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. Yeah. This is great. The stuff that I've done so far is so ingrained in my own head that I wanted to do something where it's like, I'm not going to have to build a whole mythology yeah. around it. Like, you can come do a vampire book and kind of know what's going to happen. You're always playing with some kind of established pulp aesthetic, right? There's mm-hmm. always a little bit of that, it's, whether it's science fiction in space or biker gangs. You're almost starting with a genre, and yeah. then building on top of that. But vampires are different. I mean, there are a bunch of different places that you can take the like the vampire yeah. genre or like the horror yeah. genre. You can take it to like Interview with the Vampire or you can take it to The Hunger. You can take it to Twilight or you can take it to Abel Ferrara's The Addiction. Or you can take it 
where I wanted to go, which was the 70s films of the French director yeah. Jean Roland, and look at these sort of wispy figures yeah. that are just going through like the most horrific changes and annihilating everyone around them. And yet it still has this poetic edge to all of the films, even though there's like a lot of softcore porn strewn throughout them as well, because that's how he made his money. I wanted to look at this weird disconnect between those ideas and try them out in a book between, that was going to be giant and in color. Between the horror and the pornography? Between horror and sort of poeticism. The pornography still present in what you do yeah absolutely yeah well i mean that's how i make my money too (laughs) i do remember that when i used to go to a lot more mainstream comics Mm -hmm. is there was always that kind of erotica section and probably that was certainly sounds like it was a case for you and probably for a lot of people that was kind of their in into that that world of alternative comics i mean even like robert crumb has that element yeah yeah it's sort of part of being countercultural. Yeah, I think that's true. And and again, going back and looking at the works that sort of transformed my like young mind, yeah. it was stuff that was more sexually explicit, yeah. like looking at Ripple or reading Lolita. It's just really looking at like sexually explicit things at probably too young an age. Yeah. Um <laughs> so it it feels very much like like sort of exercising those kind of ideas and demons i guess i mean you say too young an age but look kids now i mean you know you i don't want to look at kids now yeah but reading (laughs) like reading nabokov and you know having access to the internet are two entirely different things at least like you had it through one of the best writers yeah i kept it classy and the nice thing about that was my parents literally like not super not literary minded people Mm. god bless them but because i was reading they they were just happy to see me reading reading anything so i'd bring books like that on like summer vacation and they would just think nothing of it you can get away with a lot more you have to work for the (laughs) sexy parts and kids today don't have to work that's true that's true unless you have friends at book market for you just like fall open yeah exactly For some reason, everybody's reading this page more than any yeah, of the Yeah, so many like, sexual yeah. awakenings happen just on that page. Have you gotten bolder about the sex parts? I think so. I think doing porno sort of softcore comics for Sluttist helped yeah. doing that. I did that for like three, two, three years. And and doing them online, yeah. just releasing these ideas, because I'm, I'm sort of like trained for print, I think, as an artist. Yeah, so you like hold yourself up for three months. and Exactly. Or... And then I put out a mini comic yeah. and then, you know, maybe I get feedback, maybe I don't. Yeah. And now it's like, okay, it's a new sort of dawn. Let's try doing all this stuff online. And I remember like the first few times things would get posted, I would just have this like mini aneurysm where I was like, everybody knows. Everybody knows. What have I done? to my career what have i done to my name i didn't use a pseudonym i didn't even think to do that did you feel like you were revealing something about yourself each time it felt really personal was it um i think i think releasing any kind of artwork is always personal but i mean did you feel a connection i mean obviously you were working from something subconsciously probably yeah absolutely yeah more than I get those sort of pangs of like nervousness anytime I release anything, but it was especially strong for that. I think because it was like, I'm showing you my aesthetic understanding of intimacy on this level and hope you like it, you know, smash that like. It's just like, it's such a weird feeling. It's so strange. You never really did autobiography, did you? No. I think about it, but every time I go to do it, I'm like, I'm so boring. Like, there's nothing. Well, yeah, but for a lot of people, that's kind of their way in. You know, people at least start with diary stuff. But don't you feel like they're all lying? 
Well, yeah, they're either lying or they're they're boring, and that, that's probably fair. But... That's the problem. Like, I could never could never do that. But there kind wasn't of stuff. an element of being afraid to show too much of yourself on paper. In terms of like not doing autobio. If one of the things that's really making you nervous about these pieces is you know that you're revealing a little bit of yourself, I mean, you're revealing all of yourself in autobiography at least it's more of a one-to-one you can edit though you can say if you had a shit day if you were a terrible person to a waitress you just don't put that out sure but But you want to put the more interesting parts of your life and those aren't always most flattering (laughs) but what i tend to see in autobio is like my friends are so great i watched a movie today you know it's just like i i want to see someone being atrocious if they're being atrocious but because you want to joe matt I don't really want a Joe Matt, but I do want a Joe Matt. It's like, or Chester Brown or yeah. you know, whatever. Because it's like, at least you're giving me something. Yeah. You're, it's kind of a press release for like never wanting to be near you. And I think yeah. that that's great. God bless. But when it comes to, if you're going to do. Joe Matt's a, a perfectly nice I'm guy. Sure he's, I'm sure he's great. He's lovely. Um, I just worry about that jar. But I think with um, with sex comics and you know even going to joe matt for this yeah if you want to convey an activity you're going to have to do something that yeah. conveys that activity and what you're conveying to the audience as they're going to understand it is this is how she understands how this act works it's different it's it's formally very different than going and saying like i had a great day today or i had a yeah. shit day today or whatever like you can you can draw yourself to be whatever kind of person you hmm. think that you are but when it comes to doing sex stuff it's just it is what it is it would be sort of interesting one of the reasons why i regret not having kept a you know like a journal when i was younger is like it would be really interesting to sort of go back and look at what you thought sex was when you were younger well think of it this way think of have you ever had to like write down a recipe oh probably it's it's almost impossible like trying to teach somebody how to do like a baked potato even just think how you know how do you put it in the foil how do you wrap it up how do you use language to describe i mean i knew you did the comics but I'm, i'm not familiar with the comics are they instructional no, but what I'm saying is that when you're going and you're trying to show like this very intimate physical yeah. act, you're bringing it down into very formal elements in yeah. the same way that you'd be breaking down language to describe how to do something. It's not necessarily instructional, yeah. but it's based on that same kind of formula. So what you're doing is you're showing an act and taking it and breaking it down into very like specific elements that show this is how you understand that this works. Why did you agree to take that on? Uh, I wanted to. Yeah. I I thought it would be... Did they approach you? Yes. Was the idea fully baked? My friend Kristen, who I actually worked with yeah. um, at Japan Society, Kristen uh, Soleil, wanted to... Was starting a sex positivity blog. So she was just sort of writing about, you know, uh, instances in culture, arts and culture, um, things happening in politics, all that, all that sort of stuff as it related to sex mm-hmm. positivity. And she wanted comics for it. And so she came to me at the signing for Nurse Nurse and asked if I would, you know, she's like, this is really cool. Would you ever be interested in doing this kind of work? And I said, yes. So it's always been something in the back of my mind. There's a lot of erotic cartoonists that I really love. And I just sort of felt like it was the right time. Yeah. And that freed you up to be a little more open about it with the new book? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, because... I mean, once you sort of take it and yeah. look at it head on, yeah. it's impossible to not want to use it in, in yeah. other things. You know, it's like, I don't know, you learn how to like play guitar really well or something yeah. and then you're just like going to put it away forever. Yeah. Like, no, you know, you, you incorporate that into your band. Is that part of what drew you to trying Vampires On was there's I mean, obviously there's an inherent sexuality to every vampire story. Yes, I think so. I think being able to see it so 
interestingly done with in general on films was something that that drove it and just sort of wanting to like recreate that for myself and to play with a genre that you were already interested in Mm -hmm. was it harder to approach because so many people had done it no 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 not really I'm, i'm not really when i'm working i'm not really looking for originality so much as just personal expression yeah so i'm not you know i was like well i know i'm probably i'm not gonna accidentally remake the hunger yeah or anything like that so i'll be you're working with some very clear tropes there and you weren't afraid of doubling up on any of them no not really no well i i think that everything that's been said and done about vampires has been said and done and if i run into cliches or anything like that i should be running into cliches you had written the book before you pitched it to fana i had started working on the book in i'd written it and i started working on it in black and white and pitched it to fana that way and eric reynolds said that he liked it but he wasn't connecting with it and so i took it back into the wood shop such a weird comment i mean what do you what do you what did you take from that um, I, I took it at face value. Yeah. I figured that if he didn't want it, he would just say, I, I don't want it. Connecting is such a interesting way to put it. I think that when you're running an operation mm-hmm. like that, where you can only take on so many books a year, yeah. you want it to be something that, you know, Eric obviously has, I don't want to speak for him, but he obviously has a huge wealth of knowledge of comics. And maybe this was just not hitting any sort of area that he was familiar with or saw potential for in that form and i took it back again in color and did it bigger and and we got the okay were you thinking of it earlier in terms of having to do something that would potentially appeal to a wider audience i mean that would certainly help you get onto a larger publisher not really no no i i think that because my work connects with people aesthetically first, mm-hmm. I I don't worry about story yeah. so much. I kind of think of that like as secondary. I'm like, if the art gets them, then the story will sort of follow. You were doing a lot of photocopying before, so it wasn't in color. But have you always colored your work? No, I haven't. I, I really got started doing it with the erotic stuff yeah. and then carried it over into the vampire stuff. Does that present an entirely different way of thinking about things? It does. I treat coloring as... Um, it's sort of like the the finishing yeah. stages. Yeah. Um, and so I only really think about it as I'm doing it. Yeah. But when I'm drawing, I'm not really, really thinking about it. It would be interesting, though, now that you're a little more trained in it. And, and because it was such an essential part, it sounds like, of this book actually getting adopted, whether that's something you'll attempt to potentially incorporate into the process earlier on. You would think so. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know. Are you thinking about the next book already? Yeah, I'm I'm already working on it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I started a Patreon for it. Oh. I just started it last week. And it's going pretty well. But it's a story about, it's like a, more of like a West Coast story. Uh-huh. Um, it's about. As somebody a, who's been there three times in her life. I feel like I'm, I'm finally ready to yeah. comment on it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But it's. A girl who's... Do you know what like a, a fin-dom is? Are you familiar with that concept? Um, so I'll educate you and, and your listeners. Oh, good. It's a, <laughs> it's a person who... It's I a think form I can of, guess what the dom part is. Yeah, it's, okay. it's a form of domination, yeah. but it's financial domination. Oh. So basically what you're like doing... sugar daddy? It is, but it's it's can be an S&M sort of shade so that you actually never have to physically even be around the person that you're financially dominating or exploiting however you want to put it you're just getting money from them it it can be that level but there are many other levels and shades of it and i got into this community just finding it on tumblr one day just sort of by accident and i was like i can't believe that this is 
a new sort of like fetish for like yeah. the 21st century. It's amazing to me. And I'm like, I want in. Like, this sounds great. You're just getting money. But, you know, obviously it's, it's there's the original Patreon. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's really interesting. And there's so many different shades of it. And, yeah. you know, it, it's fascinating. I'm sure we'll find out more about it and, you know, whatever in the future as it becomes more mainstream, which it kind of seems like it's becoming. Mm. But I... I'm writing a story about a young girl who's doing that and she gets kidnapped by this couple and she's kidnapped for a ransom. And so all of her, they call the the people that are being dominated pay pigs. All of her pay pigs come to like hunt them down and try to like get her free. But it's just like kind of, it's just this kind of banana story. And I wanted to write something with a lot of different characters because I've never, I've only focused yeah. on one or two characters yeah. in a story. And I wanted to try to do like something more of an ensemble. So everybody sort of has their own story to tell. It's West Coast in that like a Thomas Pynchon kind of way, right? Yeah, There's exactly. just a lot going on. Yeah. There's something very, very West Coast about that. I think Pulp Fiction probably is in that world as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is about that like really large cast that really fits that world. Yeah, yeah. I think my, my third visit there will help <laughs> solidify <laughs> all of these ideas. It'll go great. But yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I'm sort of looking at... Um, palettes from like 80s anime i really want to do like because i've never done like neon i've never done like neon blues and neon pinks and you know lighting and i'm thinking like pastels when i'm thinking of the west coast yeah yeah and that works in too but i i kind of want it to just be something that's so you are thinking in color no i'm thinking in like broad strokes in color but not like down to like the characters or the panels or is that a change no yeah when i when i started working on vampire i was like i just kind of had like maroon in mind and built everything around because that blood um yeah, well the blood that i tend to prefer like in films and in comics and stuff is more like the ketchup yeah um stuff that catches yeah, yeah yeah so this is more like a, a dried blood you're telling a story there has to be some sensational elements to it but you also have to try to treat it as respectfully as possible even mm-hmm. as something is sort of from probably our standpoint as bizarre as this new subculture yeah i think the thing that I've learned about doing all of this kind of work is that nothing is really bizarre. Nothing yeah. is off limits. I want to be, I don't want it to be, obviously it's, it's exploitation mm-hmm. in terms of like style and, and genre and theme and everything yeah. in terms of the work, but I don't want it to be something that is looking down at anybody. I, I want it to be like a legit story and I don't want to be saying, you know, doing this kind of work as a fin dom is illegitimate or you shouldn't be doing it. So I'm, I'm, being very careful about that yeah but everything else is just like balls to the wall crazy i remember kim deitch did a book and he mentioned furries in it and he did did not do his due diligence (laughs) and got (laughs) nailed to the wall for it by by furries yeah yeah what was wrong i think he conflated furries and plushies which is not a thing you should do that's yeah that's amateur hour (laughs) well yeah i mean you know to be fair kim's 70 year old i I'm, i'm sure he has other things to do <laughs> yeah i don't know how steeped he was and it was only it was just a footnote in in the book i think mm-hmm. it was like alias the cat like there might have been a panel oh, where wow. he mentioned it mm-hmm. and that's the problem right like you really have to do your homework it sounds mm-hmm. like you spent a lot of a lot of hours pouring over i spent a lot of time on on tumblr yeah. i got to i i haven't spoken to anyone yet i don't know if i need to necessarily i'm open to the idea that would be a cool of getting input yeah i a little, think so uh, investigative reporting i think so but I'm worried I'm going to have to pay for it. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I... You don't want to be a Patreon pig. I, I don't want to be that yet, no. But it's funny now, having gone and, and done this research yeah. and looked into it more um, and learning all the like terms and everything, and now I'm, I'm on Patreon hawking for it. And I'm like, am I 
like did I absorb something about the but I don't really think so but it's it's been really nice you know as soon as I launched it like started getting money and like hit the first reward yeah. like today like within the week which is really really nice so I'm trying this new way of saying you know rather than me hole up for three months and yeah. do a mini let me do this in exchange for you guys seeing my sketchbook or doing a live stream of drawing or you know you get to see finished pages as they come out and that's really cool I'm really excited about that you like being that open you're not super precious about that aspect of things not anymore because um, you're confident yeah. Or more confident. I, I just don't see any reason not to be anymore. Yeah. You know? Well, certainly early on when you're figuring things out. Mm -hmm. If nobody cared, then I would yeah. be, you know, maybe I put on more airs about it. <laughs> but people are starting to seem to care. And yeah. so I want to be able to deliver. There you go. That was Katie Skelly. Uh, thanks to her and thanks to you guys for listening. Apologies for some, uh, some technical difficulties there. So there were some microphone issues that I didn't notice until after uh, the interview was finished. Had some, uh, some cord problems. Got a little touch and go there for a while. But uh, enjoyed the conversation nonetheless and hope you did as well. You can check out Katie's new book, My Pretty Vampire. It's out now on Fanographics and you can support her over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Katie Skelly. Thanks so much to her. Uh, thanks to Fanographics for helping facilitate that one. Thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program. If you like the show, you can uh, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we do actually have a Patreon, which we mention from time to time if you want to support us over there. If you've got any feedback, it's rwildcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwildcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to get all of your RIYL-related information. Like us on Facebook, and that's about all I got for this week. Lots and lots of good shows coming up, so stick around because we'll be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.